How would you define the difference between something that is sufficient and something that is all sufficient? How would you designate the difference in those things? Well, I think that we would say something that is sufficient. I have sufficient. You know, do you have enough food at your house? I have sufficient. Uh, Do you you have enough whatever to get by? I have sufficient. The word sufficient would suggest enough. It'll get by. I'm not in need. I'm not hurting for anything. I have sufficient. But on the other hand, if someone used the word all sufficient, I am all sufficient at my house, then that would mean I have everything that I could conceivably ever imagine to need I am all sufficient. All sufficient is quite a step above just being sufficient, right? Do you know that those terms are used concerning the things that God has supplied for us? Look in 2 Corinthians chapter. It's showing up there. It's not showing up here. As long as it's showing up there, it's good. So we'll just go with that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. The word sufficiency there is from this Greek word, and Thayer says that this Greek word means ability or competency to do a thing. And so sufficient, God has supplied sufficiency. We're not sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency comes from God. Because of what God has done, we have the ability or the competency to do the things that we need to do spiritually. And so our sufficiency is from God. But look at at this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. Paul says, And God is able to make... All grace abound to you, so that having, notice, all sufficiency, all things at all, uh, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. All sufficiency, this comes from a different Greek word, and Thayer says that this Greek word means a perfect condition in which no aid or support is needed. And so God doesn't just supply us with enough. He does supply us with enough, with sufficient things. But he supplies us with all sufficiency. Uh, The idea is that he he has provided for us every conceivably necessary thing. And so in our study tonight, what we want to do is look at this divine all-sufficiency. The all-sufficiency that comes from God. We stop just briefly to thank you all for being here on this beautiful Sunday evening in Middle Tennessee. Uh, We've had just a great day. Uh, The weather has been beautiful. And the day is made better by virtue of the fact that we have this freedom to come together to worship God, to honor and glorify Him as our all-sufficient Creator, as we'll talk about here in a minute. Thank you for being here. We're encouraged by your presence. Thanks to our visitors who are here tonight. We're glad you came, and we hope you'll come back just every time you have a chance to be here. All right, so divine all-sufficiency. What are some of the elements of this all-sufficiency that God has supplied? Let me first suggest to you that God's creation, His physical creation, is all-sufficient. When it comes to our physical existence here on planet Earth, God has provided for us perfectly in His creation. 
At the end of the six days of creation, when God had finished his creative work, notice it says in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. And so everything that God made was just ideal, perfect. Nothing could be improved upon. It was ideal in every sense. God's creation was perfect. You know, the evolutionist tells us that's not exactly so. That this process took a long time and that things were just a disordered chaos for the longest time. And then over a very long, slow process, things evolved to where they are now. In other words, it took a long time for things to get right. It took a long time for everything to get perfect. It took a long time for everything to become very good. Evolutionists are wrong about that. The Bible tells us that our all-powerful God made everything perfect in its beginning at the end of just six days of creation, six literal 24-hour consecutive days. God created everything, and at the end of that, Everything was very good. It was all sufficient. It didn't need, it didn't need evolution to help the process. God made it perfectly. You know, typically, I think, a lot of people who are evolutionists are atheists. They don't believe in God anyway. But sadly, there are some people who identify themselves as believers in God, but they still hold to evolution. We call them theistic evolutionists. Well, they have a problem here because they're saying God didn't make everything very good initially. And it did take evolution to bring things along to fruition, to perfection. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God's creation was all sufficient from its inception at the very beginning. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were on the first missionary journey and they were in the city of Lystra. And you may remember that the pagans in the city of Lystra tried to offer worship to Paul and Barnabas. And of course, Paul and Barnabas adamantly refused to receive their worship. And here's what they told those pagans. They said, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul said to these pagans who wanted to even worship Paul himself as a, as a god, Paul said, don't do that. There is one true God, and this one true God has wonderfully provided all things needed for us and our existence in this physical world. And so God's physical creation is all sufficient. And that's a wonderful thing. We are all blessed by that. All mankind is blessed by that. But here's something that is even more important, and that is that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. God, as we were just saying, God provided for us physically in His creation, but this is more important He provided perfectly for our eternal spiritual needs by sending His own Son to live as a man and to to be offered as a sacrifice for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 7, the Hebrew writer, and we just recently studied the book of Hebrews in our adult class, and we remember that in Hebrews, he's contrasting 
the old system under the law of Moses with the way things are now under the law of Christ. And in, in lots of arguments uh, that the Hebrew, might, uh, Hebrew writer makes in which he emphasizes the superiority of Christ. And one of those arguments that he made is we have a superior priesthood in Christ. Notice here in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning verse 23, the former priest, that is the priest under the law of Moses, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he uh, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I want you to emphasize that. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. A high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, a son who has been made perfect forever. I think you see there uh, the argument that the Hebrew writer is making. Christ, as our priest, is far superior to any of the priests that existed under the old system. There's a wonderful all-sufficiency provided in Christ, and that all-sufficiency cannot be overstated or overemphasized God has provided us in the spiritual realm with an all-sufficient Savior. Let me suggest to you that the Bible is an all-sufficient revelation. I think that there are probably an awful lot of people in the world who would give lip service to that statement. Not everybody, but a lot of especially self-identified Christians. That is, people who identify themselves as Christian. A lot of them would nod in approval if we said, is the Bible an all-sufficient guide for our lives? And so they might give lip service to it, but I want to tell you that in actual practice, their practice denies that they really believe that because our friends in the religious world have come up with lots of additions to the Bible. For instance, most denominations, while giving lip service to the Bible as being God's guide to mankind... They also have their man-made creeds, uh, their particular manuals for their church. Oh, if the Bible is all-sufficient, why would we need a creed book? If the Bible is all-sufficient, why would we need a manual to direct us in doing the things that we do religiously? See, they say the Bible is all-sufficient, or at least they might sort of casually agree to that. But their practice is different. Their practice is we need something more than that. And, of course, there are religious groups who've actually come up with new revelations. For instance, our neighbors next door over here at the Mormon church, uh, they claim that the Bible is not sufficient. We need this additional revelation that was given to Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and the other writings that Joseph Smith did, supposedly inspired works which are not, provably not. But but they, they very much would have to say, The Bible is not all we need. We've got to have the writings of Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, and so forth. We've got other friends in the religious world who would deny this idea of the Bible's all-sufficiency because they believe that they need the direct action of the Holy Spirit. They, They believe that they have to be moved on directly and personally by the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit might even reveal things to them a small whispering voice in the ear or or some sign of one kind or another, God delivering an additional message more than, in addition to what we read about in the Bible. In all those things, uh, many religious folks deny the all-sufficiency of the Bible. 
But the scripture says it is, in fact, all sufficient. In the text that Clayton read for us earlier from John chapter 16, Jesus made a promise to his apostles. Now, we won't take time tonight to go to this and, and, and prove contextually that he was speaking specifically to his apostles, but, the, but I think you know that that's true, and, and we can go back and dig that out if we need to uh, later. But to his apostles, he made a very important promise. He said in John 16, beginning verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Special emphasis on all truth. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatsoever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, when Jesus said, the Spirit is going to guide you into all truth, and again, he was speaking to his apostles, my question to you is, did he do that or did he not? Did, were, the, were the apostles inspired to know all the truth of God in their lifetime? Or are we still waiting for some truth to come down from God? I think you know the answer to that. Jesus made a promise here that was fulfilled. And all necessary spiritual truth was revealed to the apostles in their lifetime. We've just concluded this morning a study of the book of Job in this Sunday morning adult class. The very well-worn verse in Jude, the one that we use more than any other, Jude verse 3 Jude says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, uh, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you should contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. uh, Once for all handed down to the saints, uh, uh, this New American Standard Version says. So, the, the faith was once for all. Now, what does that phrase mean? If the, if the faith was once for all handed down to the saints, does that suggest more is needed? There'll be more coming along. There'll be some additional information added, maybe centuries from now. That's not what Jude's message was, right? It was once for all a finished proposition. It was once for all handed down to the saints. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, it says, His divine power hath granted to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who hath called us to to his own glory and excellence. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice, past tense, he has granted, past tense, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We, We need to stand firmly on the fact that the Bible is a complete revelation from God. It is finished And it is all sufficient. And we absolutely do not need any additional thing. Remember our definition of all sufficiency. Something that is all sufficient suggests there's not anything imaginable that can be added to it. That's the way the Bible should be viewed. Let me suggest to you that the church, the Lord's church, is an all sufficient relationship. Now think with me about this. Think about the church. Jesus made another promise. Here's another promise that came from Jesus. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. You know that verse. You know that statement from Jesus. And we've emphasized over and over again that the promise of Jesus was for one church. He didn't say, I will build my churches. 
He said, I will build my church. He promised to build just one. Now, that makes you think, doesn't it, that he fully intended that one church that he was going to build, that it would be all that would ever be needed. It seems clear in that statement that the intention of Jesus, here's one, I'm going to build one church, it will be everything needed, it will be all sufficient. I know that you remember this progression in the book of Ephesians. Again, here's something we just recently studied in our Wednesday night class. But in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, it says, God had put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that, call, uh, that, that filleth all in all. I can, I can underline over here, but I can't see what I'm underlining. <laughs> if I was going to underline, I would want to underline that the church is his body, okay? So, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the church is his body. In chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, he mentions seven things of which there are only one. We won't even take time to read that, but notice the first one. There's one body. If there's one body and the church is the body, then there's just one church, right? We've, we've, made, that, we've made that argument over and over and over again. It's our, our, a lot of our friends don't even like to hear that, that there's just one church. But we're not the ones who said that. The scripture says that there's just one church. Jesus only built one because it was everything that it needed to be. And since that is the truth, then he desires for there to be unity among all believers in the one body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning verse 10, Paul says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul and I of Apollos and I of Cephas and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? There was division in the church at Corinth, and Paul was condemning it here. And he he makes the point that we should be of the same mind and the same judgment, and there should be no division. And he specifically condemned the idea of identifying themselves as followers of certain men. I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas. Paul said that's not as it should be. And he's condemning that sort of division. He wants unity in the one church that he built that was all sufficient for all time. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine how denominational people can explain this kind of a statement that we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. They actually are, seem to be happy with the division that exists in the religious world. Uh, we've lost track now. We can't even begin to imagine how many different religious organizations there are that identify as Christian believers in Christ. There's thousands. The number has now long since been lost. We don't even know how many thousands there are. And people seem completely content with that. You go to your church, you go to your church, I go to my church, we're all good. Everything is fine. We can do as we please. God doesn't care. He's he's actually happy with that. Jesus is fine with that. No, 
That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that there is one all-sufficient church and we ought to seek it out and be part of it and not consent to all the division that exists in the religious world today. Let me suggest another area of all-sufficiency, and that is in the organization of this one true church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is an organization of the church, but the only organization that the Lord saw as needful, remember, we're talking about all-sufficiency, the only the only organization that the Lord saw as needful for His church was that of local, independent, autonomous congregations. That's the organization that the Lord set forth. And if it's what He set forth, then we have to agree that that's what's right and proper and sufficient, all sufficient. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, we read about a fully organized local congregation. And this is the extent of the organization that you can read anywhere in the New Testament. In Philippians chapter 1, beginning verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. There were bishops or elders, deacons, there were Christians in the church at Philippi. That's all there was. You you can search your New Testament over. You'll never find anything more than that a local congregation organized in that fashion. There was nothing more than that. The church at Philippi didn't report to any higher organizational level. Uh, they didn't report to, uh, I don't know, who would they report to? The, the, the Macedonian area diocese? Uh, maybe reporting to the uh, Southern European uh, collective? Uh, and then ultimately to some worldwide head at Jerusalem or maybe Rome. They didn't do that, did they? The only organization that existed was in the local, independent, autonomous congregation. That's what the Lord saw was needful. That's what He saw would work. And 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 to imagine anything more than that is to say, well, God didn't have a very good plan, did He? Men have come up with all sorts of human organizations to try and help in the work that the church is to be doing. Uh, think about that. If we, need to, if we need to invent our own organizations, then we're saying that God's plan to have independent churches organized on the local level, and that's all there ever was. There wasn't anything more than that in New Testament times. If that was insufficient, and we are improving upon the plan by building human organizations at a grander scale, then we're actually saying God wasn't smart enough to put together a plan that would get the job done. Can you think of it that way? Doesn't that seem to be uh, the implication? When I talk about these human organizations, I mean things like missionary societies, you know. Uh, this has been a big controversy uh, among disciples, Christians. Back uh, around 1900, there was a great division which resulted in today the, what we would identify as the Christian church and the churches of Christ. Uh, at that time, one of the great dividing issues, it wasn't the only one, but one of the great dividing issues was the missionary society. Uh, and, and the idea was that Local churches just are not efficient enough 
And what we need to do is we need to organize. We'll, we'll, we'll establish this organization and we'll put over it a board of directors, uh, maybe a chairman or a president over the board of directors. Alexander Campbell was the first president of the American Christian Missionary Society. We'll get churches to support this human organization and then we'll let this human organization send out preachers to various places in the world to take the gospel message. Well, why would, why would we do that? Well, the argument was because local congregations just, just can't get the job done. Not, they're not efficient enough to get the job done. We need to help out by organizing at a grander scale. Can, can you see that as a, a direct slap in the face of God to suggest that His plan wasn't good enough wasn't efficient enough, we mortals can improve upon what he uh, created. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that position. Uh, It wasn't just missionary societies. Missionary societies continue to this day. And even among some churches of Christ, there are missionary societies organized. Uh, Have you heard about World Bible School? World Bible School is a missionary society supported by churches to do the work of getting the gospel message out. That that methodology is still being employed by some. And then there were benevolent societies. You know, the churches are just not capable of doing the benevolent work that they need to do. And so we'll organize benevolent societies in order to accomplish the benevolent work that the churches are just too inadequate to accomplish. All of that's sad, right? The, 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 the church is organized all sufficiently in the pattern that God set forth. And there is no organization in the New Testament greater than the organization of a local congregation. You know, some of our brethren began to realize, and, and this goes back 50 or 75 years ago, but some of our brethren began to recognize that there was this problem with these human organizations. These human organizations, that's, that's out of bounds. That is, in fact, a slap in the face of God. We, don't, we, we can't go with the human organizations. That, that's, just a, a, that's just taking it too far. And so they backed away from many of our brethren, to their credit, and thankfully they backed away from the missionary society approach to spreading the gospel. But they still had in mind that they wanted to get the church organized on a, on a bigger scale. And so what they decided to do was that they would put the oversight of a bigger work under a, a, a set of elders in a local church. And so they, they devised a plan that has come to be known as the sponsoring church arrangement. And so we'll get one set of elders to oversee a big evangelistic effort. And then we'll get other churches to send money to that church, the sponsoring church. We'll get these contributing churches to surrender the oversight of this part of their work, at least, to the elders of a mission of, of a sponsoring church. And the sponsoring church elders will assume an oversight bigger than their own local work. And that way we'll be able to do better than just leaving it to local congregations to do their own work. And so the sponsoring church arrangement was invented. Uh, but again, there's, there's a big problem with that because it's not God's plan. It's not the way God organized. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning verse 1, Peter says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a 
a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. Emphasis on that phrase. Feed the church of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Local elders are limited in their authority to the flock which is among you. The flock of God which is among you. And so elders of one church have no authority to oversee any part of the work of another congregation. They'd be violating this principle. But by the way, this is that principle of local church autonomy and independence. And so the sponsoring church elders are assuming a work bigger than they're authorized to do. And actually the contributing churches are surrendering the oversight which they are not authorized to do. And so all of that uh, misses the an understanding of the all-sufficiency of the local church and the way it is organized. Anything beyond the local church and the organization of local churches is a violation. And it denies the all-sufficiency that God has designed into it. Divine all-sufficiency. Everything we need. Everything that we could possibly need, God has provided for us in this physical world and spiritually especially. All things necessary have been provided for us. Again, I take you back to that first statement that we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We should be so grateful that we have a God who has provided for us in this way. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. and hope it's helpful. We should be continually thankful and appreciate the planning of God in His great wisdom for all things we have. We're about to sing a song of invitation. As we sing this song, we'll ask you to consider yourself, your life. Make sure you're right with God. If you're a Christian already, but you realize you've slipped back and not been faithful to Him, come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. If we can assist you in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.